Paul writes these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're only going to read verses 13 through 18. That is our text today as we continue this series from 1 Thessalonians. Paul said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Let me just ask you this question. How many have lost someone very dear to you that you really loved in the last year or two? Raise your hand if you have all across this room. This message I I pray will encourage you today. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, how many believe Jesus died and rose again? Even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Holy Spirit, um, I just feel in my spirit that this word today is for someone or many that are struggling and wrestling with the loss of someone that they deeply loved. May have been in the last short season, it may be many years and they still struggle with that. And I just pray God that you would help me today to present your word and these words to rightly divide them, to correctly interpret them so that our hearts can be encouraged, comforted, and challenged. But I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would gain a better understanding of that for which we are pursuing. And you would stir in us a passion to reach the lost while there is still time. I ask God for your anointing. Um, I don't deserve it haven't earned it. In fact, if it was on that basis, I would not be a recipient of that anointing, but I need it today. I pray that in my weakness, your strength would be made perfect. I pray that every heart and every mind would be supernaturally captivated by the truth of your word, and that we would be challenged, encouraged, and stirred together today to be the people of God that you've called us to be. I thank you for that, and I believe you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a few years ago now, I'm guessing um, six or seven, maybe eight years ago, I don't know exactly the time, but I was asked to do an unusual funeral, and uh, the family came and met with me. I had done a funeral for a family member years before, and Um, they didn't have a pastor and 
They weren't church-going people, and they asked me if I would do it, but they had some stipulations for that service. Um, they didn't want me to read any scripture. They didn't want me to pray. Um, they didn't want me to mention Jesus or talk about God. Um, and I said, you bet, I'll do it, I'll be glad to. And uh, I did, I did the service, um, and I kept all of those commitments except one, but they never knew that I didn't keep that commitment. I did use one scripture, I used um, a passage in Psalm 90 that nobody else knew was scripture, and I used a version that made it not sound like scripture. Psalm 90 in the NIV says, we spend our lives as a tale that is told. So that's the verse I used. And I just simply said, an ancient wise writer once said, we spend our lives as, I was pretty honest, all right? We spend our lives as a tale that is told. And I built off of that. And I talked about every one of us writes a story with our life. Um, our lives, everyone in this room, we are telling a story by what we do. And I had several points to that. If I couldn't say Jesus, I couldn't pray, couldn't use scripture, I was gonna keep them a while. So I decided I would have several points. But my last point was that every good storyteller or author has the end in mind when they start writing the story. And so that's where I landed. And I just simply asked them the question, are you thinking about your end? And uh, I was able to keep my commitment, challenge them, and, um, and they appreciated it. They thanked me, and, um, and, and to this day, when I see them, they talk about that and they are thankful for that. I've also um, recognized, as I think back, that outside of the word that I was trying to give to them, that service was cold, it was dark, it was depressing. You can see it on the faces of everyone sitting there, there was a sense of hopelessness. I've also officiated the funerals of three of my four grandparents. Three of them have passed since I became pastor here and they were all in the church. And then the fourth one I co-officiated with Pastor Hall, my grandpa Menard died before I came here. And those services, as I think about those, were also different. All four of them were Christ followers, believers for many years. All of them are in heaven today. And their lives and their testimonies gave everyone sitting in that funeral home a sense of assurance and hope and confidence because we all knew where they were. We did not sorrow as those who have no hope because we knew that we would one day see them again. And I'm sure that all of you can relate to that scenario, the tale of two or three or four or five funerals. So with that kind of laid over here for just a moment, well, let's go back to our series. We've been talking about what it looks like to be blameless when Jesus returns. And in the first six weeks, these are the things that we've talked about, number one, we must be found a faithful witness. Number two, we must walk worthy. Number three, we must endure suffering. 
Number four, we must have a steadfast faith. Number five, we must live holy lives. Last week we learned that we must walk in brotherly love. Today, I want to suggest to you, based on Scripture, if we want to be found blameless when Jesus comes back, we must live our lives with a hopeful anticipation. We're hopeful, and we are anticipating when Christ returns. The subject matter is about this little Greek word, parousia, or parousia. It's the word that means the coming, the arrival, the visible presence. And so in this text, it speaks about the coming, the arrival, the return of Jesus Christ. This word shows up three other times in 1 Thessalonians, and I want to read them to you and show you. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, what is your hope? What is our joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his parousia? He's talking about when Christ returns. We see again in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, this is really our theme verse for the series. Paul said that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the parousia, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and we will get to this text next week, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the parousia at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many believe Jesus is coming back someday? That's what this message is about, the parousia, the coming of Christ. There was no doubt in the minds of the Thessalonians to whom Paul wrote that Jesus was coming, that the parousia would take place. However, there were some problems that were beginning to develop um, in the minds of the Thessalonians. And these things, these questions that they had began to come up after Paul left them. And so he's writing this letter to kind of encourage them and to calm them and to try to answer some of their questions. One of their questions, I just mentioned it last week, was some of them were saying, why do we need to work? If the parousia is coming soon, if Christ is going to return in a month or two or six months or a year, why do we need to even bother working? And so Paul had to address that issue with them. Some of them, uh, in this section, what happens to believers that, um, that have already died, they thought, they were under the impression that they were going to all be around. They thought that the parousia was coming quickly, and so they weren't sure now what to do because some of the believers had already died, and they were worried about them and what that meant for their lives. Some of them had evidently heard Paul say that everyone who believed would see the parousia. They had heard that, and so now some of them have died, and they're wondering, what does that mean for them? What happens to them? And they even wondered, have they forfeited 
their share in the coming, in the parousia of Christ? Have they lost that opportunity altogether? And some of them had brothers, sisters, grandparents, parents that had died. And so they're beginning to wonder, what is this all about? What happens to them? Does the fact that they died before his coming discredit the whole notion of the parousia altogether? They were wondering, maybe we missed it. Maybe Paul was wrong. What is going to happen? And so there were all of these questions that were coming. And to top it all off, some of them thought they had already missed the parousia. Anybody ever have that experience when you're a kid and you go home and you can't find mom and you think you missed the coming of the Lord? Anybody else ever have that happen to them? Well, they thought maybe they'd missed it. I mean, he was going to come as a thief in the night. Maybe they missed it. They were living their lives. And, and here, all of these questions are a concern to them. They knew the story about Peter when Peter saw John in John 21 and John's walking by and Peter said, well, what's gonna happen to him? And Jesus said, don't you worry about him. If I want him to live until I return, what is that to you? They all knew how the apostles questioned Jesus and thought that maybe this was the time he was gonna restore the kingdom. So all of these early Christians struggled with this notion of the coming of Christ and they were confused about it. So uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, we're not studying 2 Thessalonians, but this problem still continues. Paul says, brethren, concerning the parousia, our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be too shaken, too soon shaken in mind. Don't get too nervous about it. Don't be troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. They were saying, guys, settle down. It hasn't happened yet. You haven't missed it. And I'm just going to say to all of you, we haven't missed it yet, all right? It hasn't happened yet. And, and so this was the concern that the Thessalonians had. False teachers had come in, and they had taught the people that peace and safety had come and that they were in the post parousia day that had already happened, and now the conditions of the new creation had already been inaugurated. And so Paul writes these words in 1 Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, don't, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in a night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Everybody look at me for just a moment. Paul was just trying to chill them out. They were all nervous about this, thought they had missed it, some thought it wasn't real, and all of these questions, what about my brother that died? What about my son that died? What, what's going on? All of these questions floated around Thessalonica, and Paul did not want them to be uninformed. He wanted them to be comforted, not overtaken in despair. He didn't want them to be flipping out and worried and nervous and anxious. He wanted them to be comforted. And so he says to them, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorry, sorrow as others who have no hope. In other words, Paul was saying, I, I don't want your sorrow to be so great that it overcomes and overwhelms you. I don't want you to have hopelessness. I don't want you to be uninformed. I, wanna, I want you to understand the message of the parousia. 
Now, Paul uses this phrase, I don't want you to be ignorant, often it means confused or uninformed. And Paul says that Christians, please listen to me, should not grieve in the same manner as others who are hopeless. But when they're confused and when they're uninformed, they don't know what happened, maybe they missed it, maybe it wasn't real, maybe this whole thing was bogus, when all of those things are swarming around in their heads, they're going to be overwhelmed by their grief. And Paul said, I I want you to be well-informed because if you're well-informed, you're not gonna grieve hopelessly. Now, can I say something, and I'll allude to it again in a moment, but what Paul is talking about is neither no sorrow, he's not saying you shouldn't have any sorrow, nor is he even saying that you should have a lesser degree of sorrow. So if you're here this morning and and you've lost someone dear to you and you still grieve that loss, there's nothing wrong with that. Christians aren't immune to being sad and grieving. Paul does not say you shouldn't grieve. He said, I don't want you to sorrow like those who have no hope. Sorrow is part of what happens to us when we lose someone we love. Leon Morris gets it perfectly. He says, Paul's contrast is not between one degree of sorrow and another but it's between Christian hope and pagan despair. Others who have no hope is the non-Christian world. What Paul was saying is, he wasn't saying you should not have grief, you shouldn't have sorrow. Paul was saying is in the midst of that grief, you should have hope. Because we're not the pagan world, we have a hope that keeps us even when we grieve. Say amen if you believe that. Hopeful anticipation should be the trademark of every believer when he comes at the parousia. Let me share with you four powerful statements or truths about this hopeful anticipation. First one I'm gonna give to you very quickly. I've really already alluded to it. Hopeful anticipation does not mean less sorrow. Let me read you a little story. The New York Times, it was a 2015 article, reported that television commentator Larry King, how many remember Larry King? They reported that Larry King was obsessed with his death. His day begins with reading obituaries and he ponders who will give the eulogy at my funeral. He smiles as he thinks it might be Bill Clinton and then his face becomes blank, but I won't be there to see it. He has had a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, seven divorces. He was 77 years old when the television news station CNN dropped him. And when this happened, he really became aware that there will come a day when he dies. And of course, he has died at this point. When he learned from the television of the death of Osama bin Laden, this drove him to jump up on his feet. I needed to go and be on the air. I needed a red light to go on. He realized he had nowhere to go. So King, to move against aging and death, at this time takes hormone pills. At that time, not, I don't think he's taking hormone pills now. But at that time he took hormone pills for human growth, four of them each day. 
He planned on his body to be frozen so that someday he would live again. The New York Times writer reports, it's nuts, concedes King. But at least it gives me a shred of hope. Other people have no hope. This is a gentleman that had what most would consider a successful career, but he was hopeless. What Paul is saying is, I don't expect you not to grieve, but I do expect you not to feel hopeless. Christians need not fear death. Look at what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, wrote in Hebrews 2. Jesus, through death, destroyed him who had power of death, that is the devil, and he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We don't have to be afraid of death. If you are a child of God, if you know Jesus, if your loved ones knew Christ, you don't grieve hopelessly. Hopeful anticipation does not imply, however, a lessened sorrow. To have hopeful expectation does not mean we don't grieve, doesn't mean we don't sorrow, but it means we are not afraid and we are not hopeless. Now, let me be the second point, because the first one was really in the introduction, and I just mentioned it again. But this is where it gets really important. Hopeful anticipation is grounded in a definite act of Jesus Christ. Jesus transformed death. How many believe that? He transformed death for us. Look at what Paul writes, and this is really good stuff. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, everybody raised their hand and said he, they did. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Look at me for just a moment. The reason for Christian certainty in the face of death is because, what, because of what God has done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason I can have hope when I'm doing my grandparents' funeral is because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb. It was a certain act of Jesus that gives me certainty in the face of death. Jesus, the text says, look at this, we believe that Jesus died. Let me just pause there for a moment. It's a real simple question. It's not a trick question. How many believe Jesus died? The text does not say that Jesus slept. But notice what the text says about this. It says Jesus died, but he will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Please Put your thinking caps on and listen to me for just a few moments. Humanity that has died, that knew Christ, has not really died. They are merely sleeping because Jesus at the cross took the full brunt of death for us. So what is this all about? Christ on the cross endured the full brunt and the horror of death. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. How many are thankful you don't have to pay for that wage because Jesus took, are you with me this morning? He took it on the cross. 
and thus through his resurrection, he transformed death into mere sleep for his followers. Now that's a metaphor. I'm not talking about the soul sleep doctrine because our souls are immediately in the presence of the Lord and very much alive. What I'm saying is that we, because Jesus on the cross died and resurrected, he took the full brunt of death for us so that death was transformed for you and me. Say amen if you believe that's powerful. Jesus said to Martha, at the tomb of Lazarus. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? What's Jesus saying? Yes, there's a physical death but because Jesus took the wages of sin and because he destroyed the power of death when he came out of the tomb, we don't ever really die if we know Christ. Our soul immediately goes to be with Jesus and we are awaiting the resurrection of the body when the body and the soul are united and we are forever with the Lord. So here the distinction is made between believers and those who are not. Not all the dead have this hope, the dead in Christ. Those who know Jesus, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he lives and live, and whoever believes and believes in me shall never die. And Christ will bring with him, the text said, all those who have slept in Jesus in his parousia. When he comes, he will bring with him those who have slept in him. Some will be asleep in Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about soul sleep. The soul is very much alive. This is a metaphor. The difference is it's not ending kind of death. Jesus took that for us. And then he resurrected. And so he defeated the power of death. So it doesn't finish us off any longer. We are merely metaphorically sleeping. Some will sleep in Jesus. And when he comes, they will be made alive. Some believe that Paul thought that he would be alive when Christ came. Paul also knew that the possibility, read Philippians chapter one, he, he wasn't sure. He said, you know, I, I'm kind of pressed between the two. To go and be with the Lord would be wonderful, but to stay here would be just as good and, and maybe a better for you. And, and Paul knew that there was the possibility of either or. Walter Wangerin Jr., let me just read this quote, I love this. He said this, we have a faith that does not shrink from death. The fundamental concern of our faith is both to reveal with fearsome accuracy the nature of death and to draw the sting from it by the victory of the resurrected Christ. We of all people need to deny nothing true, the bad and the good. Of all people, we are most able to confess the grand proportions of death, so terrible as to defeat us all, but defeated rather in Jesus. Everybody look right here for just a moment. Let me, let me try to make this make a lot of sense. Christians don't deny the power of death. 
We don't deny the grief that comes with it. We don't deny the sorrow and the loss that happens when we lose someone we love. Of all people, we should say we know how painful it is. It hurts, the grief is real, the sorrow is real. It is so terrible that it would defeat us all completely had Christ not defeated it. Say amen if you believe that. So we we grieve still. It hurts still. We miss the one we love still. We know how terrible death is, but there is a confidence in the believer. There's a spring in their step that says it is so awful that it would have defeated us, but Christ took it on in the tomb, and the tomb is now empty because Jesus has defeated death. Say amen if you believe that. Hopeful anticipation is grounded in the definite act of Jesus Christ. He has transformed death. Thirdly, hopefully anticipation is motivated by the promise of Christ's all-inspiring interruption of the world's godless folly. Paul says this, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. The Phillips translation says it like this, one word of command, one shout from the archangel, one blast from the trumpet of God, and the Lord himself will come down from heaven. This text, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the fullest and the most vivid description of the parousia in all of scripture. And by the way, can I say, if that's the most vivid description If we're not given any more vivid details than that, we need to be very careful about being dogmatic, about when it's going to happen, or what it's going to look like, or if there are stages in it. That's not the point that Paul is making. Paul's point is Jesus is coming. How many believe that to be true? He's coming. The main point is the Lord, look at this, the Lord himself. The Lord will come himself. He doesn't send an intermediary. He doesn't say, I'm gonna be tired this day and I'll send a few angels instead of me. He doesn't say, Moses, you've been kicking back for a few thousand years, why don't you go instead? The Lord himself will come. No intermediary. He comes to usher in the end of the age. And with a shout, this loud shout, the word is, is kalusma. It's the word that's used when a charioteer calls his horses or a ship barks out a command, a ship's master to the rowers, or the commander shouts to his soldiers. There's always a sense of authority and urgency. He is in control. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, not somebody else, The Lord himself will shall descend from heaven with a loud shout. He is in control. The trumpet, with a trumpet blast, the trumpet was always identified with divine activity. Look at Exodus 19, 16. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So they all that were in the camp 
trembled. Look at Isaiah 27 in verse 13. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown and they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And look at Joel chapter 2 and verse number 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. So the Lord himself, not somebody else, is going to descend from heaven with an I'm in control shout. There's going to be a trumpet blast and the dead, will you, will you watch this, get this, the dead in Christ will rise. Notice death cannot break our union with Jesus. How many are in Christ today? Are you in Christ today? When you pass, that union doesn't break. The dead in Christ. That's why we're not afraid of death any longer because Jesus transformed that the dead in Christ shall rise. A powerful moment. The world spiraling in decay will be interrupted, not by an underling, but the Lord himself is gonna descend from heaven with a shout and break up all of this folly and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. D.L. Moody says, as I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried. They are only sown. I like that. The dead in Christ, still in union, are going to rise. Hopeful anticipation is motivated by the promise of Christ all inspired. Isn't that going to be a day? That is going to be a day. The Lord's going to descend, and it's going to be Jesus and he's gonna shout, and there's gonna be a trumpet that blows, and the dead in Christ shall come out of their graves. Hopeful anticipation is motivated by the promise of Christ's all-inspiring interruption of the world's godless folly. Let me give you the last one, and I'll be done. For the rest of us, then we which are alive Hopeful anticipation is solidified, sorry, by the assurance of reunion. How many believe you're going to see your loved ones again that knew Jesus? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means with force and suddenness. That's what's wrapped up in this word. It implies the irresistible power of God. They'll be sucked up. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive remain shall be harpazoed, caught up. Together with them, a reunion. There's going to be a meeting in the air. How many remember that song? It's, that's theologically sound caught up to meet them, a reunion with Christ and also those that we love. We will join them in the clouds. That's even important. So often the Bible talks about we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. But the Lord himself is so confidently the victor over the principalities of the power of the air that we're going to meet him in the cloud. On the enemy's territory, we're going to meet him. He's going to call us up. The dead in Christ are going to rise. 
in the clouds to meet the Lord. The word or the phrase expression to meet is a technical term for an official welcome when there's a new dignitary that has shown up. We're going to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Look at that last line. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Before we go to the next screen, just hang on just a second. Here's, I just talked to you for a moment. I like eschatology. That's the study of end times. I love studying that and speculating and guessing. There's a lot of people that uh, maybe spend too much time there. There's a lot of things we would like, and I'm sure that the Thessalonians are reading this and they're thinking, tell us all about the details. But when you end with this line, and thus, we shall always be with the Lord. You kind of think, who cares about all the details, right? Leon Morris says there are many points on which we should like further information. But when Paul comes to that great fact, he stops. There is no need and no more to add to that. We're going to forever be with the Lord. And so he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Everybody look at me for just a moment. I'm almost done. Paul's words are not meant. He didn't, he didn't give us 1 Thessalonians 4 so that we would be caught up in endless fascination and distress and anxiety about who the Antichrist might be and who, what country is in and what country is out. I've pastored for 37 years and there have been at least 15 Antichrists in those 37 years. People are always speculating. Nations have changed around. I mean, I remember many times that people thought, that's it, that's it. The nations are aligned and then a few years later, they're not aligned and then there's a new alignment. But Paul's not giving us that. So we get caught up in that extreme fascination. Paul wants to encourage them. He wants us to encourage one another with these words. Not so we won't grieve, but so that we won't grieve hopelessly. Because your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter, or your mom or your dad that knew Jesus, that you loved and that you miss, you will see them again. Philip Yancey in The Jesus I Never Knew, and I want you to listen really closely because some of you may be struggling with this very thing. Two days have earned names on the church calendar, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Yet in a real sense, we live on Saturday, the day with no name. What the disciples experienced in small scale Three days in grief over one man who had died on a cross we now live through on the cosmic scale. Human history grinds on between the time of the promise and the time of the fulfillment. Can we trust that God can make something holy and beautiful and good out of a world that includes inner city ghettos and jammed prisons in the richest nation of the earth? It's Saturday on planet earth. Will Sunday ever come? That dark Golgotha Friday can only be called good because of what happened on Easter Sunday. 
A day which gives a tantalizing clue to the riddle of the universe. Easter opened up a crack in a universe winding down toward entropy and decay, sealing the promise that someday God will enlarge the miracle of Easter to a cosmic scale. It's a good thing to remember that in the cosmic drama we live out our days on Saturday. The in-between day with no name. I know a woman whose grandmother lies buried under a 150-year-old live oak tree in the cemetery of an Episcopal church in rural Louisiana. In accordance with the grandmother's instructions, only one word is carved on the tombstone, waiting. Though Jesus cast a vision for a better kingdom now and in the future, as long as it is Saturday, the fulfillment of that vision still awaits until Sunday dawns. Remember those two funerals? One hopeless, my grandparents full of hope, sad, but no despair, because we're waiting. We're waiting for that day. shall all pass away no more tears and one day you'll make sense of it all Jesus one day every question resolved every anxious heart left behind no more fear When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. One. 
to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see jesus we'll sing and shout the victory we'll sing and shout the victory stand with me please this morning father i thank you for the hope and the assurance that we have that one day we will see you face to face and our loved ones who've gone before us who knew you we will be caught up to meet them in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord Lord, I pray if there are those in this room that don't know you and don't have that assurance, even right now, they would simply breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, come and live inside of my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. And I pray, Lord, for those who are grieving, may they be comforted with these words. Does it take the sorrow or the pain away? But may they have hope.